Welcome to Nancy's Bookshelf, a weekly program of conversations with North State and national writers from North State Public Radio. Now here's your host, Nancy Wickman. My first guest is a co-host of the most widely heard radio program in the United States, NPR's Morning Edition. Steve Inskeep searches for the full story behind the news, and this led him to an interest in history and writing four books. His previous book was Imperfect Union, about Jesse and John Fremont. He has now written a book about how Abraham Lincoln succeeded in a divided America. Differ We Must tells Lincoln's life story through his meetings with people who disagreed with him. Steve Inskeep, welcome. Good morning. Well, I want to know what your intention was in writing this book about Abraham Lincoln, because there have been so many books written about Abraham Lincoln, big, heavy tomes, multiple volumes. So how did you think you had something you could add? Um, I wanted to focus on a series of meetings that Lincoln had throughout his life with people who disagreed with him, who differed in some way, different background, uh, different race, different gender, different class, and above all, different opinion about big issues in, in many cases. And I wanted to see how he dealt with all these different kinds of people. And that felt really relevant now. Uh, in this time when we're having so much trouble dealing with each other. I want to understand how Lincoln did it. Now, that I, I had a slightly different idea, to be honest with you, at the very beginning in early 2020 when I started researching and writing this. But I think events from early 2020 onward uh, drove me in the direction that I ultimately went. Because, you know, I'm like covering the news during the day and I'm writing at other times of day and the evenings are, are on, on weekends. And I realized that how Lincoln dealt with differences and with disagreement might be valuable now. In fact, I even recently heard the term civil war used in a present day news report. Yeah, um, people raise that. I want to say that I'm not like, you know, I'm not like storing away my weapons for the Civil War. I don't expect that right away. <laughs> you know, who knows another generation from now. Um, I there, there was a big, big fundamental issue that had to do with the organization of all of society to wrestle with in the 19th century slavery. Um, as big as our disagreements seem now, and some of them are very big, There's not an issue that divides us in quite the same way. Like, what would we really, truly have a civil war about? But with that said, we're obviously in a very difficult time where I think a lot of people are frustrated with the idea of even dealing with their uncle at Thanksgiving, much less bringing the country together. Well, one thing I noticed in reading the book, when I would read quotes, I think, my goodness, the level of English spoken was so far above what you hear today. And even the title... Um, How did you choose the title of this book, Differ We Must? This came from a letter that Lincoln wrote. Um, And you can find, by the way, all of Lincoln's words. I mean, it's like no other figure in American history. There are other figures who have similar collections, but this is an amazing one. The Collected Works of Abraham Lincoln, eight volumes of more than 500 pages each, I think, every word that he is confirmed to have spoken in a speech or written in a letter. And one of the letters is to his best friend, Joshua Speed, who disagreed with him about slavery. Speed was from Kentucky, a slave state. He came from a slaveholding family. He grew up on a farm worked by more than 50 enslaved laborers. Now, as a grown-up, when he left that farm, he became Lincoln's best friend. And he said, in the abstract, slavery is wrong. But he disagreed with Lincoln about what to do about it. And Lincoln tells him off in this letter, he says, you're not really serious about ending slavery. And he tells him why he thinks so. But then he says, if for this you and I must differ, differ we must. Philosophically accepting that they were not going to agree on a very big thing, um, but he he was not going to throw away his friend. In fact, he signed the letter, your friend forever. That is a different approach than some people are encouraged to take to differences today where we're supposed to shun or ostracize or denounce the other person or we get called naive or foolish or even evil for, for immoral, for talking with other people. Lincoln's approach was keep the lines of communication open and see what he could do with that relationship. He didn't necessarily change the other person's mind. They didn't necessarily change his mind. But in some cases, they would find something they could work on together. And he took part in building this great anti-slavery coalition that changed the country. Yeah. And um, you show in your book that 
through his whole life and his political re- career, he often, we would say today, agreed to disagree. Yeah, yeah, I, I think that's definitely part of it. Like, I understand that we're not on the same page about that, but let's see what we can do about this. Um, sometimes it didn't work. I should be honest. I mean, there's 16 meetings here with all kinds of people in all walks of life throughout Lincoln's life, and some of the meetings are failures. Some of the meetings break up with nothing seemingly accomplished. But even in those circumstances, Lincoln was trying to figure out, how can I get the most advantage out of this situation? Well, there were so many things in your book that were new to me that I I found shocking, actually. For example, we know that, um, of course, Lincoln was assassinated, but I was surprised how many times Lincoln's acquaintances thought he might commit suicide. Oh, yes. Yes, this is true. 1841, so he meets this woman named Mary, and they break up, and... And his acquaintance was afraid. They, uh, this friend, his best friend, thought that Lincoln was so despondent he removed razors. Yes, it's an amazing story. And that best friend was that guy Joshua Speed, the same one that disagreed with him about slavery. They roomed together. They actually shared a bed for several years because housing was a little scarce in Springfield, Illinois in, in, in those days. Um, and, yeah, Speed was afraid for his life. Uh, and Lincoln had periods of depression and melancholy, as it would have been called then, throughout his life. Sometimes you do see the word depression, actually, in the letters uh, of the time. Uh, or you would hear that Lincoln was nervous. Lincoln would say, I was nervous. And by nervous, he didn't mean tense. He meant depressed. That was one of the meanings of the word at, at the time. Uh, he struggled with that all his life. And it's remarkable. It's one of the triumphs of Lincoln, really, that he could be so cheerful and joking and be so sad inside, and ultimately his political course was a steady one. It wasn't about the wild swings of extreme. It it wasn't about uh, lashing out at people. It wasn't about standing still. It was about patience and fortitude and forbearance sometimes, dealing with just, just accepting things that were terrible but that he could not then change, and moving onward and seeing what good he could do in the world. Well, later in the story, his attorney general was afraid that Lincoln might hang himself. Yeah, yeah. That was another crisis moment during the Civil War in 1862. There are multiple accounts of Lincoln in 1862, a time when the war is going really, really badly, um, when they're, they're afraid for his life, afraid not only just that he would hang himself, but that, that, that his health would fail. Um, And there's even an occasion where a longtime friend, Orville Browning, comes to him in the White House library and Lincoln just looks terrible. And Browning says, I'm very worried for your health. You've got to take care of yourself. And Lincoln says, well, we all must die sometime. And Browning leaves the room with tears. I must die sometime. Yeah. Yeah. Well, now, I want to ask you a question because I grew up in a county named for Preston Brooks. This county was created in 1858. And I mention that year because something horrifying to me took place two years before. So I want to know your take on what Preston Brooks did. Thank you for telling me that. Um, I guess I should explain for our listeners that Preston Brooks was a congressman from South Carolina, which was a slave state, and he was a pro-slavery man. And he felt that Charles Sumner, an anti-slavery senator from Massachusetts, had insulted a relative of his by the way that he delivered an anti-slavery speech in the Senate. And Preston Brooks walked into the Senate with a cane and beat Charles Sumner senseless. Um... And, and this wasn't a spur-of-the-moment thing. I had always no. thought, oh, he just got mad at the moment, took his cane. But it was 36 hours later. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And he decided that his honor required that this man be beaten for what yeah. he said. And the other incredible part of this, which it sounds like you know very well, is Brooks, of course, was massively criticized for an act of violence uh, in the halls of Congress. And he said, fine, you don't like it, I'm resigning. And he goes back to South Carolina to his district, stands for re-election, the special election to replace him, and he wins re-election and gets sent back to Congress again with the support of his people. Uh, And I didn't know that they went ahead to name a county after him, but once we know that, it's not surprising. Yeah, he he was presented as a hero. But Charles Sumner was 
uh, people didn't like him. Uh, everything I've read about him, he was he was not a likable character, humorless and condescending and arrogant, a narcissist and egotist. But I still find it horrifying that Preston Brooks would do this. And this this story, though, is I, I disagree with what the New York Tribune said, quote, Sumner beaten by a Southern coward. And I don't really think um, Preston Brooks was a coward. I would have other adjectives for him, but I don't think he was a coward. Yeah, I, I understand what you're saying there. And I'm interested in your description of Sumner, which you're right, is very common. Like, who is this cold, humorless guy? Um, but I want to note something that I guess is pertinent to the theme of my book, and that is that he became friends with Abraham Lincoln, who was a very different personality and had a big sense of humor and everything else, as we have, have mentioned. Um, but Lincoln put up with him somehow and made an ally of him and relied on his advice. They didn't even entirely agree about slavery because Sumner was so much more radical than, than, than Lincoln was. But they ended up, of course, very much on the same side. Well, one thing you bring out in your book is that Lincoln had a sense of humor. And yeah. I want to say that I found you have a sense of humor, too. I've found instances in, in your book. For example, um, you say, if Lincoln had had a happier union, he would have been less prepared to serve the union. <laughs> ah, referring to his difficult marriage. Yes, yeah. and you say he kept both together. Well, he did. Another time I enjoyed your pun was about Stephen Douglas. Here was Stephen Douglas, uh, was a little short guy, 5'4", or maybe not even that tall. And <laughs> he sought the Democratic nomination in 1852. Though he fell short, he was young enough to try again. <laughs> I don't think I intended that one. That's your joke. Oh. Congratulations. <laughs> well, I've so enjoyed your book, and I just think so many people will enjoy it, even if they don't know why. And I think it's very instructive. For example, can you just tell us briefly, which this is your one of the things I loved about your book, because so many books I've read on Lincoln have been huge, you know, 10-pound volumes. Mm -hmm. But what was the Civil War really about? You're asking me what the Civil War is really about? <laughs> it was absolutely about slavery. Um, and we know that from the people who started it. Um, and I mean, we can say there's blame to go around or whatever. I mean, everybody was complicit in slavery, which is something that Lincoln himself said in a statement in 1864, we're all complicit in this evil. Um, and he didn't even claim that slave owners were particularly worse people than anybody else. But he knew the system was wrong. Yes. And, at, and at the time of his election, the Southerners said, we don't want to live under an anti-slavery president. We're out of here. We're leaving the Union because we lost this election. They fired the first shot. And Alexander Stevens, the Confederate vice president, said this is about preserving slavery. This is about the fact that the Declaration of Independence was wrong to say all men are created equal. They are not. That is the principle, if you want to call that, for which the South fought, and we have that in their own words. One more thing I learned in reading your book was about the Emancipation Proclamation. I never thought of it as being the fact that it gave the Union a new source of manpower. Yeah, that came through to me in a deeper way than I'd ever thought about before. Lincoln talked of the Emancipation Proclamation as giving a double advantage to the Union. They decreed freedom for the enslaved laborers of rebels. It only applied to rebel areas. And anybody who got out of slavery would be a laborer who left the Confederate side and then was added to the army on the Union side because so many of them did enlist in the army. And so a double advantage was Lincoln's math. Well, I think people will learn a lot from your book and especially the times we're living through now. Thank you so much, Steve. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you for your questions. My guest has been NPR co-host Steve Inskeep. His book is Differ We Must, How Lincoln Succeeded in a Divided America. I'll be back with my next guest, Andrea Ross, after a short break. You're listening to Nancy's Bookshelf on North State Public Radio. I'm Nancy Wigman.
I'm Nancy Wigman, and you're listening to Nancy's Bookshelf on North State Public Radio. Today's guest, Andrea Ross, was adopted at birth by Robert and Sharon Ross, both longtime Chico State professors. As a young adult in Chico, Andrea taught poetry with California poets in the schools and founded the nonprofit organization Common Earth Wilderness Trips for Women. During the 1980s and 90s, Andrea Ross worked throughout the American West as a wilderness guide, National Park Service ranger, and backcountry search and rescue leader. She's currently on the faculty of the university uh, writing program at UC Davis. Her book, Unnatural Selection, a memoir of adoption and wilderness, is about her years as a wilderness guide while searching for her biological family. Andrea will actually be in Chico October 12th, and you're invited to a reading at 6.30 in the Performing Arts Center, room 134 on campus, sponsored by the Writer's Voice reading series. Andrea Ross, welcome. Thank you. Good to be with you. Well, when I'm reading your book, it is called a memoir, so I'm taking everything as fact. But is your work totally fact? Uh, yeah, except for one chapter, which I have a little note about, kind of a disclaimer in the beginning. Um, one chapter is an imagined scene, but every, everything else in there is true, <laughs> although I've sort of collapsed a few events and and combined a few characters, but everything really happened. <laughs> so in chapter one, you give us where you are, the location, like you do in the various chapters, which I appreciated. And you say Loma Mar, California. And I thought, Loma Mar? I don't know where that is. So I had to look up where Loma Mar is. And then you start telling us that uh, it was your second day, you're teaching sixth grade environmental science at a week-long outdoor program near the Santa Cruz Mountains. So there I said, oh, yeah, okay, so Lamar is near the Santa Cruz Mountains. And this was your first job after college. And you say you hadn't been trained to do what happened that day. You were out there playing guitar on a break, your afternoon break. And I'd like you to read, Andrea, what happened there when you're just sitting out there enjoying playing your guitar so would you read the opening uh, chapter? Yeah. So um, I'm sitting in the old staff house on my break, as you, as you said. So I'm actually in a house and practicing my guitar um, for campfire that night. And uh, here we go. I struggled to stand up, guitar strapped across my chest. I had been in a few earthquakes before, but none of them had made a deafening sound like Friday night at the racetrack. I looked down at my feet, shod as usual in hiking boots. The floor rocked so violently, I had trouble balancing. The wood panel walls shuddered, the roof started creaking, and gritty brown ash, a century's worth of dust and wood rats showered me from between the ceiling planks. I tried to brush it from my hair, but then the taxidermied great horned owl we used for demonstrating night vision and silent flight took a dive from its perch and thudded, puffing apart on the floor and making me jump back with a start. I ran outside, guitar bouncing in front of me on its strap. Once clear of the house, I turned toward it. The roof line rippled and heaved like a break dancer I'd recently watched in the San Francisco Mission District. I turned away so I wouldn't have to see it fall. Instead, I watched a grove of mature live oak trees swaying cartoonishly like punching bags being struck repeatedly by some giant fist. Acorns thundered down on me, pelting my scalp. I covered my head, but they bruised my knuckles and banged the guitar whose strings twanged like the soundtrack of a horror movie. Again, I ran, looking for protection. As I neared some metal picnic tables, the racket grew even louder. The din of acorns striking them was deafening. I crawled under a table, even though I was sure a tree would fall on it and crush me. The noise and violent earth shaking continued, so I closed my eyes and covered my face with my hands, not wanting to see the destruction about to rip loose from the crust of the earth, 
roots rising up like twisted hands, trunks crashing down, things that don't usually move at all stirred with a crunch and a crackle. This can't happen now, I thought. I never got the chance to meet my birth parents. This is Andrea Ross reading from Chapter 1 in her memoir, Unnatural Selection. So we as a reader learn her birth parents, but we're surprised as a reader, oh my gosh, she's in an earthquake and she's concerned that she never got the chance to meet her birth parents. So this is your story that we as readers are, it's kind of a mystery. We're in suspense that... um, that you're adopted, and we admire your adoptive parents, at least uh, when they were teaching at Chico State, they were uh, won awards for their teaching. So I indirectly admired your adoptive parents, but you need to know who your birth parents are, and why did that become urgent, Andrea? Um. When I was 20, so I was in my second year of college, uh, I suddenly got really, really sick and I couldn't figure out what was wrong with me. Initially, it just felt like a flu uh, or something like that. But after a while, uh, I wasn't getting better. So I went to a doctor and they were concerned. So they got me a, a bunch of blood work done that said there was some sort of inflammation in my blood. And eventually I saw a rheumatologist who said that, yes, I had some sort of um, inflammatory arthritis kind of disease, and um, they couldn't diagnose what it was. They didn't know which kind it was, but um, they suggested it might be lupus, which really scared me when I looked up what lupus was. And those were the days where you had to actually go to a library and look up in a medical journal. This is true. This is before, long before the internet was available to all of us. Yeah. But I realized at that point, it was the first time I'd ever really thought about my status as an adopted person having bearing on my my health. And I realized that I didn't have any information about my medical history. And so that was what started me thinking that I probably needed to find out who my birth parents were so that I could know whether my body was full of genetic things that were going to cause a lot of trouble. Well, let's go to the opening of Chapter 2 then and catch us up on on your background, Andrea, before you reached age 20 and, and had this health problem. So would you read the uh, opening paragraphs in Chapter 2? Mm-hmm. I was born in Denver in 1967, placed in foster care when I was one day old, and adopted by another family three weeks later. In those days, closed adoptions were the norm. In closed adoption, the birth parents and the adoptive parents agree to anonymity, and they sign away their rights to know who the other party is. The idea was that this arrangement would allow birth mothers to move on with their lives, leaving behind what was thought of as the tragedy of unwed pregnancy. It also allowed adoptive parents to pretend there was no other mother, no other family to whom their baby belonged, and it ensured that no birth parents would come knocking on doors demanding their baby back. My closed adoption was one pretense after another. In accordance with state laws, my original birth certificate was sealed and an amended one issued. This new birth certificate declared that I was born at hospital, delivered by doctor, further encrypting my origins. The name of the woman who had given birth to me was removed from the document, and the names of my adoptive parents were inserted in her place. I first read this document as a young teen when I applied for a passport to travel with my family. It made me feel anonymous to read this false birth certificate, as if I hadn't been born at all. As soon as I could understand it, my parents told me I was adopted. At first, because of how they normalized it, I didn't give it much thought. But as a pre-adolescent, I began imagining who my birth parents might be. Toward the end of my second year of college, I woke one day in my futon on the floor of my student apartment and every joint in my body hurt. I didn't have enough energy to get out of bed and eat a bowl of cereal, much less attend my classes that day. 
The next day was the same. So was the following one. After a few weeks of achy fatigue, doctor visits, and blood draws, I finally saw a rheumatologist who concluded that I had some kind of inflammatory disease similar to lupus or rheumatoid arthritis, but not diagnosable as either one. The doctor prescribed anti-inflammatory medication for me and ordered more blood work. I looked up lupus in a medical journal at the university library and learned that it's an incurable autoimmune disorder that can cause heart problems, kidney failure, and stroke. In a literature class, I had learned that Flannery O'Connor had died from lupus at the age of 39, leaving stories unwritten, a life half-lived. I felt alone and scared, wondering about my own fate. My parents were readying to leave on a trip to England, so they weren't able to visit or take care of me. I was hurt that they had chosen to depart on the trip rather than help me, even though I knew it was unreasonable. It was a transatlantic trip, after all. Yet I was their child, wasn't I? And I had a mysterious disease that might kill me. This is Andrea Ross, and she has written a memoir, Unnatural Selection. And she is describing why it became urgent to find out her medical history. But with a closed adoption, so much information is not available to her. So what are you, what were your and uh, somebody who had a closed adoption, what resources, how can you go about finding out your medical history, Andrea? What are your resources? Well, at the time, this was in the 80s, in the late 80s. At the time, I wasn't 21 years old yet. So I actually, I did call the adoption agency since I wasn't 21 yet. I actually, they, they said they could look for any information about medical problems, but that's all that they could give me at that time. And then when I turned 21, I was eligible to ask for something called non-identifying information, which is uh, a short document that the social workers excerpt from the information that they take when the birth parent relinquishes the child that gives a little bit of background in terms of ethnicity, things like that, you know, what the parents looked like, et cetera. So initially, I just got a really short thing from the agency saying, you know, there, there's nothing mentioned here about inflammatory disease or anything hereditary. And that was it. <laughs> so it was very frustrating. Well, you described the, the scene when you bring up the subject with your parents and you arrange a conference call because you weren't there where they were. You couldn't talk to them in person. And you arrange a conference call because you told them it was something important. You wanted to talk to both of them at the same time. And you were very hesitant to do this because you didn't want to, them to think you didn't love them because you needed to find your birth parents. But you told them, I want to find my birth parents. And uh, you ask them, is that okay with you? And, of course, your mother says, well, of course it's okay. And so you're relieved to know it's okay with them. And uh, you wondered if social workers had told her some, some things that maybe she didn't write down, maybe she had some notes. Did that, did that get you anywhere, talking to your mother or your dad? They really didn't remember very much because by the time that I was asking them, it, you know, it had been 20 years and uh, they told me, you know, they had just been so excited to find out that they had a baby coming that day that all they wrote down really was what kind of formula they were supposed to buy for me. Yeah. But it was a kind of relief. They, they were accepting the fact that you wanted to find out who your um, birth parents were. Yes, they were. They were very kind about that, yeah. And so what did you find out about your birth parents? Um, so when I was eligible to get the longer document, which was about four pages long of quote-unquote non-identifying information, um, I found out a bunch of things. Do you want me to read that part of the book? Yeah, and, and notice that it's pretty much on you. Your parents say, yeah, it's okay with us if you want to find your birth parents, but... They weren't, <laughs> your phrase was, they were not going to hold my hand while I searched. That was not how they parented. 
And, right. And the, you, you said you really wanted to ask, will you help me? But that wasn't the way they parented. Yeah. So it was the 70s. When I, when I was young, it was the 70s. And, and I think parenting styles in general tended to be more uh, relaxed. And, and my parents in particular felt very strongly that, you know, we should have certain freedoms that they didn't feel they had when they were growing up. Um, so we did have a lot of freedom and it, it kind of uh, worked at cross purposes for me because I just, I felt I needed more support. Um, I wondered, you know, why I was being sort of set so free. And I didn't realize until much later that it was probably because I had been relinquished at birth and was sensitive to being alone, to being, you know, have fear of abandonment, things like that. If you'll let me just uh, on a side, this independence that your parents granted you and your siblings <laughs> extended into preparing dinner. Now, <laughs> would you, would you, I, I found that humorous, Andrea. I, I don't think you did at the time, but what did your parents decide when you were just little kids? What did they have you do about dinner? They decided that we should, everybody should have uh, one night of, of preparing dinner. Um, it happened, I was the oldest of three kids. So I think it probably happened when I was about 12, but that meant that my brothers were 10 and nine-ish. Um, and uh, my parents said, well, you know, everybody needs to cook one night a week. But I don't think we received a lot of guidance about how to do that. And I did not like that idea that I had to cook because my <laughs> friends didn't have to do that. Um, so I sort of, uh, I did it in protest by dumping a can of chicken noodle soup into a <laughs> pot every Tuesday uh, <laughs> so Tuesday was your day to fix dinner. Uh -huh. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think people then, would be understanding. I mean, both your parents worked. They both had careers. And so, uh, hey, kids, pitch in. Let's uh, see exactly. what you have for dinner. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I was kind of petulant about it. Um, I think my youngest brother just enjoyed the, the idea that he could turn on the the hibachi grill and burn things he was <laughs> and then my other brother actually liked cooking so he got creative with it but i i did not like that idea at all <laughs> okay now back to your story your search for your birth parents okay well in chapter six uh you're at navajo national monument and um you had told your parents you wanted to search and what did you do? So I was born in Colorado. So I sent uh, a letter to the juvenile court asking for my sealed records um, and explaining that I had this undiagnosed um, illness. And um, they were not very receptive to that. Okay. After I told my parents I wanted to search, we sent letters to the adoption agency and the Colorado Juvenile Court asking for information about my birth parents. We emphasized the importance of learning my medical history because of the still unidentified chronic illness I suffered from. In return, we each received a letter from the juvenile court. Here's what it said. <clears throat> All adoption records are closed upon finalization. A court order demonstrating good cause is required to release information. The information in adoption and relinquishment matters in Colorado is confidential, and the court is very strict in this regard. Having a good cause hearing in no way guarantees that this information will be released to you. A door had slammed in my face. I was furious. How could the state of Colorado have more rights than I did to information about my birth, my family? It didn't seem right, but I didn't know what to do about it. After a break, I'll be continuing my conversation with Andrea Ross about her book, Unnatural Selection, a memoir of adoption and wilderness. You're listening to Nancy's Bookshelf on North State Public Radio. I'm Nancy Wigman.
I'm Nancy Wigman, and you're listening to Nancy's Bookshelf on North State Public Radio. I'm back with my guest, Andrea Ross, whose book is Unnatural Selection. So you uh, have all sorts of outdoor adventures, and you go to Alaska. And I was quite impressed that you went to Alaska to take a training course to be a wilderness guide. And it wasn't just like a few days or even a week. It was five weeks. Mm-hmm. You were in the Alaska backcountry as a guide training course. That's right, yeah. And also part of your training involved taking charge in medical emergencies. And you mentioned that a guy you were dating, you were with, and this medical emergency came up, and he's, he's nudging you, and this is my vision of it, nudging you, Andrea, you've been trained to help out in an emergency. So what did you have to do? Yeah, I had just gotten my EMT certification, actually at Butte College. Uh, (laughs) And uh, I was trained as an emergency medical technician, and I had done that because I knew I wanted to guide wilderness trips. And so uh, this boyfriend of mine, we're hiking in Arizona. We're actually hiking up the tallest to the tallest point in Arizona, which people don't really think of as mountainous, but it's a pretty tall peak. It's like 10 or 11,000 feet. Anyway, and um, we got up to the top and some some teenagers who had been like sledding on the snow in inner tubes, one of them had crashed into rocks and was pretty badly injured. And I was young and didn't have a lot of confidence. And I wasn't sure that I wanted to deal with that, that injury. Um, it was all men up there on the top of the mountain. I was the only woman. And so I hesitated, but then my boyfriend said, you need to deal with this. You're, you're medically trained. And so then I did and just kind of shifted into the mode of being an EMT that I had been trained in and eventually um, called for a helicopter rescue off the top of the mountain. So it was pretty dramatic. They first thought they were going to need a helicopter. Yeah, it, it was getting dark, and I found somebody with a radio and asked um, for help. And they they said, "Okay, we'll send up a, a foot crew," which I knew would take a few hours. And it was getting dark, and it was getting cold, and it was getting windy. And there were like fourteen of us up there on the top of the mountain, and this young guy who was probably fifteen years old or so. Uh, who had a head injury and other injuries that, you know, seemed like maybe some ribs were broken or something like that. But I was like, this guy's going into shock. We can't wait that long. And so uh, I made a call and they said, do you, do you really think you need a helicopter? I was like, I, how am I supposed to know I've done this before? But I, I said, yeah, I think we do. And so then and then we learned how to prepare for a helicopter landing and and how to load uh how to load an injured person into a helicopter. So it was, there was a lot of learning going on on the top of that mountain for me. My guest is Andrea Ross, and the title of her memoir is Unnatural Selection. And she's been telling us of kind of two parallel stories uh, about her search for her birth parents. She was adopted at birth. And you say that you really... um, inhabited two ecosystems, one, your adoptive family, and the other, your birth family that you don't know about at this point, and that you were also working as a ranger, for example, in Grand Canyon National Park. And so there are kind of these two parallel stories. How do you, how do you reconcile these um, uh, threads in your life, Andrea? Well, I think that part of what took me out into the wilderness, into the backcountry, was uh, the sort of the the idea that you're you're walking and you're you're looking at things in the landscape, and to me that was kind of a form of searching. It, it sort of paralleled the search that I needed to do. It gave me time to think about how I wanted to approach my search. And it also gave me an environment that was outside of my own family that I grew up with, outside of any other environment that I, you know, that I inhabited, not a work environment. But it was just sort of the wilderness to me became 
a holding place or another kind of family really, um, or another kind of home where I could figure out what I needed to do, figure out who I was, what I needed to do about this search issue. And so the being in the wilderness and the searching for my birth families really informed each other and intertwined with each other in, in lots of ways. So here's this person who loves the outdoors, loves being out under the sky and maybe sleeping in a tent or not even that. And yet, <laughs> you love poetry. And <laughs> the two, I don't think people would necessarily um, put the two together in the same person, but you also claim you have a sentence that maybe people wouldn't agree with, Andrea. You say, I was a poetry imposter. <laughs> Why do you call yourself a poetry imposter? Uh, that was—I think that was when I was gra uh, applying to graduate schools in in poetry, mm -hmm. graduate programs in poetry, and I was coming almost directly out of a backcountry job, um, and not directly out of undergrad or out of a a major in English or anything literary except for my own reading and writing that I did. And so I had this pull. I was really drawn to to go study poetry for a master's degree, but I also felt like an imposter of like, am I really allowed to do this? You know, should I try to pursue this or not? Um, am I just, do I only belong out in the wilderness? <laughs> that, that was sort of my thinking. Well, I think we often cheer somebody who follows their true interest, the kind of person they really are. And we mentioned earlier a boyfriend who loved the outdoors like you did. But then you meet this guy who seems unlikely, and you think, oh, he didn't look like an outdoors guy. He looks pretty nerdy, thick glasses, and, uh, and he admits to having left. He was a lawyer for 11 years, and he, did, he hated being a lawyer. And so we're thinking, well, this doesn't look like an un a likely friend for Andrea. Was he? <laughs> I married him. <laughs> Reader, I married him. Spoiler alert. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and he comes across as such a sympathetic character, very supportive. So we learn to love Andy in your story, <laughs> Andrea. That's great. I love Andy, too. He's he's in the other room right now. <laughs> <laughs> so we're reading along, and we read all your adventures in the outdoors, which captivate us. But then we're also wondering, but she still hasn't found her birth parents. So some of the information you got uh, turned out to be unreliable, Andrea. What was some of that information that uh, was was misleading. Uh, for example, you like to swim. I guess you still like to swim, right? Yeah. So there was something in the non-identifying information that said that my birth mom was on a swim team in high school. And I thought, oh, well, that should be pretty easy to find uh, some information about. And I knew she lived in northern Colorado. Um, there couldn't have been that many girls swim teams at the time. Um because this was in the late 60s when, when she was in uh, high school and college. And uh, I looked and looked, and there, was real, there were really no women's sports in high schools, actually, at the time, at least in that area. Um, and uh, So that was a dead so end. You it got was a dead end. That. Yes. And there were a couple of other things like that that um, just didn't really lead me anywhere. And I thought, Huh, I wonder if if the the social workers deliberately obscure the information even further so that so that people cannot go out searching and find who they're looking for. And you of course wanted to know physical information because of your health problem. So, uh did you find out uh what did you find out about her ancestry for example? I found out that she was uh, 100% Norwegian, that both of her parents were, were of Norwegian extraction. And so that I was, that I'm half Norwegian, which is not something that I uh, had considered before. Nobody ever, you know, walked up to me and said, boy, do you look Norwegian <laughs> to me? Uh, so You're that not was, that tall. That's interesting to find out. Yeah. 
uh, and then that on my birth father's side that there were there was a bunch of different things less less definitive, but um, it was it was exciting to me to find out that I was half Norwegian. So your search continues. Uh, you find out some information that was misleading. You go down blind alleys looking on your own. And then there's this agency uh, that you hadn't really checked out because it was, you know, you don't have a lot of spare money for this could get expensive tracking down your birth parents. But you did contact um, an agency and the woman got back to you in a week. And so she was she was an expert at this. Yeah, so uh, Colorado has it's it's only sort of um, stipulation or it's only legal avenue for um, finding people who are parts of closed adoption is is a confidential intermediary system um, wherein uh, a, who somebody <laughs> me applies <laughs> and says you know who they want to find. And then an, a searcher, an expert searcher, is appointed to try to find that person. But they're allowed access to those sealed documents that I'm not allowed to see. And then if they are able to locate the sought-after person, then they do their best to contact that person and ask if they would like to be in contact with me. So it's this very um, oblique system, and it was expensive. And I found out about it relatively early on in my need to search, but I was, A, very stubborn. <laughs> I, I, I didn't want to pay a whole lot of money, you know, all this big chunk of money for information that was inherently mine. I, I just couldn't get over that. I couldn't. And... The other thing that really stopped me about it was that part of the deal was that if the sought after person was located and they indicated that they did not want contact, then all of the records would be sealed, no information would be given to me, and I would be even kind of worse off than I had been before, knowing that this person didn't want contact, but but gaining absolutely no more information except for another rejection. So I just couldn't stomach it for a long time. Well, when I'm reading your book, it was a page turner for me. Every page I turn, something unexpected, and I'm wondering, oh, does she ever find her birth parents? And I would like readers and listeners to enjoy that same uh, suspense. Okay. <laughs> I'd like to remind listeners, the title of your memoir is Unnatural Selection. The author is memoirist, poet, and outdoorsy person, Andrea Ross. Thank you very much, Andrea. Thanks for having me, Nancy. I would also like to thank my first guest, NPR co-host of Morning Edition, Steve Inskeep, whose latest book is Differ We Must, How Lincoln Succeeded in a Divided America. And next, we have a segment we call The Writer's Room, and it features writers from around the North State. The Price of the Journey. And this begins with a short epigraph from Su Dong Po. If the true face of Mount Lu cannot be known, it is because the one looking at it is standing in its midst. Knowledge arrives, thirsty and talking too much. What can we do but stare, mouth open, in naked wonder? Knowledge babbles in chumbling tongue, strange language we've never heard, spouting tales, mysterious and incomprehensible. Why trust it? Why listen? Ours is a form of desire, the hope that we too may one day travel to distant lands. We crave a map, but knowledge burns all maps. Its journey is blind grasping, a desperate push beyond all limits. Every moment we linger in not knowing, every moment we accept incomprehension, we travel further. We stand at a crossroads, unsure of which fork to follow. We stare, we gape, we dream and draw, drunk with misdirection, not lost. We are eternally arriving. 
Rob Davidson. Bidwell Park Cleanup Day. I find one more beer can, filthy cigarette butt, another bottle cap, orange peel, flip-flop, slobbery tennis ball chewed by dogs. Into the trash they go. Wildfire smoke clogs the sky, stings my eyes. Still, this haze is sparse today. More may come unless that storm blows in. Cleansing rain fires foe who will recreate the wind. Don't betray us. Get yourself here now. I call you when I find ripped-up pants, inner tubes, bags of moldy fries, bubblegum wads, torn paper towels. Storms, I offer you my work and trash. I sweat. Paul Belts. It is called At the Café. A little to the right, just two more inches until it catches light the way you like. The dribbling sky, blue coffee cup, the boomeranged formica, a plate with half a cookie, gray-green eyes, a golden watch, a duct-taped chair, and thou. It's Bob Garner. For more information on the writers you've just heard, go to mynspr.org and click on the poetry link. You've been listening to Nancy's Bookshelf, a production of North State Public Radio. You can find this and other episodes of Nancy's Bookshelf on our website, mynspr.org.